This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy last week led a vote to oust Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee over her alleged anti-Semitism because she's criticized the state of Israel. McCarthy has instead embraced two GOP representatives, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, whose anti-Semitism is well documented and who are now poised to regain their committee seats. In a speech on the House floor, Omar rightly pointed out that the Republican attack was about, quote, who gets to be an American. She called out the GOP for its earlier culture war aimed at the nation's first black president, Barack Obama, and for spreading rumors that he was a secret Muslim and not a natural-born U.S. citizen. My guest is Corey Peterson-Smith, the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for uh, Policy Studies. He researches U.S. empire, borders, and migration, and has written for such outlets as The Nation and Yes Magazine. Welcome to the program, Corey. Thank you, Snelly. Glad to be here. Now, you and I had spoken about two years ago on this program about Ilhan Omar's words at the time when she posted a tweet that was deemed problematic. And we talked about how the right was attacking her for criticizing Israel. I also brought up the fact that Kevin McCarthy then had promised to remove Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee if the GOP took the House. And it seems as though he made good on his promise. He didn't waste very much time, did he? Absolutely not. And um, I think it's pretty obvious why, you know, Ilhan Omar is one of, if not the most vulnerable people uh, in the U.S. Congress. I mean, just by virtue of who she is, uh, a black woman refugee, uh, you know, this, the Congress, the U.S. Capitol, that building was not built for people like her to represent people in this country. And then she opens her mouth. And she criticizes uh, any number of, of problems in this country, the economic inequality of this country, the racism in this country, and yes, U.S. foreign policy. Um, and so really from the start, um, even from before she actually took her seat as a member of Congress, uh, particularly the right wing uh, of this country, has been losing its mind uh, and not only trying to make sure that she has as little power as possible, trying to disrupt everything that she has done uh, or try to do in terms of policy, but also has, of course, opened the door and given the green light to the most vile uh, misogyny and racism. So um, Kevin McCarthy, who is obviously coming into uh, Congress, into the House um, as speaker on a very weak footing uh, and took the most cynical route um, and picked on Ilhan as a way to try to get points for himself and uh, for his base. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that Kevin McCarthy doesn't have very much of a mandate. Uh, what was it, 15 votes that uh, he had to sit through before he was elected House Speaker? Um, I mean, I knew you could argue about what it was that who it was that was holding him back. I mean, Kevin McCarthy faced opposition from the extreme right wing of the GOP, the part of the party that he has actually embraced. And Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene represent that caucus. And he still had a hard time becoming House Speaker. So in addition to sort of making good on his promise, doesn't it seem as though he's sort of um, appeasing that extremist part of the Republican Party? 
You know, I think that that's part of it, though it must be said, unfortunately, you know, the kind of um, just vitriol for Ilhan is is not limited to that part of the party. You know, it's throughout the Republican Party. And it must be said that um, until now, you know, until that vote happened, Ilhan really couldn't count on much support from the Democratic Party uh, either. So, you know, the, the point is absolutely uh, well taken that Kevin McCarthy is operating in a totally cynical way. Um, and he's trying to corral on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. I mean, it really doesn't seem like there's much of a strategy here for, for, for rule. And so if that's what worked, you know, last week to kind of um, keep the, the, the party together, uh, so be it, but who knows if they'll have a crisis next week. Uh, obviously, you know, a couple of weeks before they had a crisis. Um, so in, in that sense, yes, this was about um, kind of pulling along uh, the party. And it is the case that the reason why Ilhan is so vulnerable is because, unfortunately, she has not been able to count on the support of many people in Congress at all. And, and it's, it's good that finally, in the face of such a brazen and cynical and kind of nakedly racist attack uh you know her colleagues in her own party stood with her in the sense that they opposed this vote um it is the case that she has been so vulnerable and actually let's take a listen to uh part of the speech that she gave on the house floor to get a sense of why it is that ilhan omar as you were saying you know is the kind of representative that congress wasn't built for here is uh ilhan omar last week this debate today it's about who gets to be an American. What opinions do we get to have, do we have to have to be counted as Americans? This is what this debate is about, Madam Speaker. There is this idea that you are a suspect if you are an immigrant, or if you are from certain parts of the world, or a certain skin tone, or a Muslim. It is no accident that members of the Republican Party accused the first black president, Barack Obama, of being a secret Muslim. It is no accident that former President Donald Trump led a birther movement that falsely claimed he was born in Kenya. Because to them, falsely labeling the first and only president of the United States of America, a Muslim and African immigrant, somehow made him less American. Well, I am Muslim. I am an immigrant, and interestingly, from Africa. And that is Ilhan Omar on the House floor in response to the vote led by Kevin McCarthy and his party to oust her from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, she was defended by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat from New York, and some other progressive members of Congress did defend her. But I want to pick up on what you were saying, Corey Peterson-Smith, about how members of her own party haven't uh, sort of paved the way or made it easier for the Republicans to launch this attack um, two years ago when Ilhan Omar faced attacks from the Republican Party. Her own colleagues demanded she apologize. For, and we don't want to rehash the whole conversation because you and I talked about it two years ago. But, but give me a sense of how the Democrats, you know, have tried to have it both ways. Right. I mean, even this time around, while, you know, this vote that happened to oust Ilhan from this committee, it, it happened along party lines. So the Democrats, uh, you know, they voted against it. 
but there was a kind of um while there was on one hand a very adamant you know and i think moving um and very clear defense by people like alexandria ocasio cortez there's also a kind of um qualified defense by other members of the party so uh, representative meeks for example sent out um a, a message from his office afterwards saying you know of course we voted against um this this cynical effort by the gop but you know ilhan omar has made mistakes in the past with um anti-semitic remarks but she's learned her lesson and it it, it again it accepts this notion that there's something anti-semitic um about what ilhan has done you know uh, either at present or in the past really about calling attention to israeli crimes um, against palestinians and so in particular um when we last time we talked it was in the midst of uh, a situation in congress where while on one hand you know then president trump was kind of going all out in in, in the assault um uh, on ilhan omar in particular though others as well like rashida Tlaib and, and um alexandria casio cortez and in regarding ilhan the it was then house speaker nancy pelosi put forward um a resolution condemning the boycott divestment and sanctions uh movement um you know it, the, the point being uh that there's something anti-semitic about bds and about criticizing israel and therefore something anti-semitic about ilhan omar and it's simply not true now one of the problems is that um if we actually want to tackle anti-semitism you know if you actually want to talk about anti-jewish racism it's the republican party that has um embraced the likes of marjorie taylor green and her uh statements about jewish space lasers i mean it's just sort of like the wackiest the conspiracy theory meets extreme racist that you can think of um and 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 people like paul gosar and you know why is it that the Democrats and Ilhan Omar calling out the Republicans on their hypocrisy, AOC calling out the Republicans on their hypocrisy seems to fall on deaf ears. Why doesn't the Republican Party pay a political price for this? Ilhan Omar pays a political price for critiques that are conflated as anti-Semitic. But why don't Republicans like Gosar and Taylor Greene pay a price? Well, that's, that's a really important question. I mean, first of all, I just want to start where you did and just acknowledge that there actually is a problem of rising anti-Semitism in this country. You know, the, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting um, in Pittsburgh was not long ago at all. It was not long ago at all that um, when men marched in Charlottesville with torches saying Jews will not replace us, that um the president of the country at that moment said that there were good people on both sides i mean that that happened and it is also the case that open kind of nakedly anti-semitic bigots like nick fuentes is is getting an audience with um you know at mar-a-lago uh with with um high uh, officials in the gop including uh former president trump as well as kanye west so you know, you you have very powerful political and cultural figures are openly trafficking in anti-Semitism, and of course, like you said, the Republican Party is 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 primarily you know they, they bear tremendous responsibility for this. 
the question of why they don't pay a political price for um, such obvious, you know, kind of vile, uh, bigoted anti-Semitism, I think has to do with a number of things. Um, in I mean, first of all, anti-Semitism itself is a, is a problem, you know, that, that has to be um, acknowledged. That is part of uh, the story. Two, it is the case that the kind of the Republican Party in general and their, at this point, openly white supremacist, you know, kind of far right program um, that is not just, I mean, there's this Marjorie Taylor Greens who are the far, far right of the party, but the party itself has elected not to adopt a platform. <laughs> um, they've, they've had, you know, their president, uh, Donald Trump, they said, well, what he's doing is the platform. And that was a kind of openly white supremacist, um, you know, uh, kind of ethos and set of policies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that whole thing has been legitimized. I mean, it, it, it's not just the, the fact that they haven't paid a political price for this anti-Semitism, they haven't really paid a political price for the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So I think there's a kind of, um, I don't know, this, this notion of bipartisanship um, uh, and the, you know, the need to reach across the aisle as, as a sort of principle abstracted from what is actually happening reigns in Washington. It's like, well, wouldn't it be great if we could all get along? It's like, why is, why is a party, why are figures who have done such vile things being legitimized? The last thing, the last point that I think is really important is that <clears throat> US support for Israel, support for Israel in general, has been so fused with the question of, um, it, it, it has accepted the notion that Israel does represent all Jewish people in the world, which is simply not true. Never has it been more critiqued um, in this country by Jewish Americans that Israel doesn't stand for all Jewish people. Um, and yet critique of Israel is conflated with anti-Semitism. And unfortunately, that is a bipartisan reality. It's not just the Republicans who do that, but the Democrats as well. How important is it that Ilhan Omar is a refugee and brings that perspective to the U.S. Congress. One of the things that um, it seems the, the role that she plays in the House is that she brings a perspective of somebody who has directly dealt with the effects of U.S. foreign policy from the other side. We don't really have any other congressional representatives or very many at all um, who, who bring that perspective, right? That's right. I mean, you know, Peter Baynard actually uh, published, uh, I thought, a very beautiful op-ed in the New York Times about this, about the role that Ilhan has played uh, on this committee. It is the case that, by and large, there is great unity, bipartisan unity, in a kind of embrace of U.S. power and how it is used abroad. There may be at times tactical disagreements um, about just how many troops to deploy to this or that country, or just how how big the uh, the military budget should be. But for the most part, the idea that the U.S. is um, the U.S. military is a force for good in the world, and that U.S. foreign policy is benefiting the people of the world. Uh, that is, there, there's, there's more or less a consensus on that, um, or there has been a consensus on that 
by, in a bipartisan way in the US Congress, um, even though actually uh, polls, when people around the world are polled uh, about the question of what they see as threats to democracy in the world, actually the US is, is um, uh, Baynard talks about this in his piece, uh, people point to the United States actually as playing a negative role in undermining democracy around the world. And Ilhan Omar has actually, um, she has brought that perspective. I mean, certainly she has a personal perspective as somebody who has been displaced uh, by war. Uh, but it is also the case that she is, not only can she speak in um, an incredibly informed and important way about East African politics and about the impact of uh, US foreign policy and the, the policies of other states in that region, she can also speak to the history of US foreign policy in Central America as she has done many times as a member of Congress. So it's extremely important uh, that, that uh, her perspective uh, has been heard in Congress. And this is the, this is the kind of functional reason uh, for the ouster of Ilhan from this committee, because yes, of course, uh, it is because they are racist. Of course, it is because they are um, Islamophobic and misogynistic. That is all very evidently true. And functionally, it has actually been um, uh, an annoyance for them to have somebody raising such critical questions about US exercise of power, which is precisely what we need more of uh, mm -hmm. in this country, particularly in the, the halls of power that make these decisions. I, I do want to pick up on the issue of racism, Corey, and, and this was also hinting to what you were mentioning earlier and what uh, Ilhan Omar herself said in her speech, which is that, um, you know, she's a black woman and the Republican Party and the establishment of the Democratic Party is more than happy to have people that look like her participate as long as they behave themselves, quote unquote as long as they don't actually use their power to speak for others like them, as long as they don't truly represent their community, as long as they are there as tokens of, you know, sort of racial minorities, then they are invited, they're embraced, they're accepted. But as soon as they actually start reflecting the views that their community reflects or represents um, and start showing leadership, that's when they are seen as undesirable. And we see this all over, not just in Congress, but in so many other places where, um, with, where the leadership of people of color is undermined when they actually start using that leadership. Right, and so, you know, it's extremely important to talk about the tokenism and the kind of, the kind of um, ways that US, power structure is flexible enough to have as a minority of its spokespeople kind of figureheads in positions of administrating the same thing, the same kind of exercise of power that has been a disaster for, um, you know, the, the majority of people, I would argue, in this country, and certainly the majority of people uh, in uh, the world. Um, and that other piece around what does it mean um, when the US exercises power that affects billions of people, uh, 
And the vast majority of those people have no representation of any sort. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean in the sense of an elected representation. I mean, there's all kinds of things happening in the world at the moment. You know, I mean, many, this is actually a time of, for example, you asked about, about what it means that Ilhan is a refugee. This is a time of massive displacement. Many millions of people are being forced into refugeehood around the world. And frankly, US policy has quite a lot to do with that. And it's extremely important to have the perspective, um, whether somebody has experienced it directly or not, a perspective that acknowledges the reality of what tens, hundreds of millions of people around the world are experiencing. Um, that acknowledges, I mean, as, as the US uh, Congress, you know, votes on an even larger military budget, ever larger, you know, each year, um, and prepares to wage more wars. It's important for uh, the perspective of people who are on the receiving end of the violence of war to have some representation, because otherwise it is just an echo chamber uh, in, in Washington right. of people who, who more or less have a consensus on what policy should be. Corey, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your perspective. Really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure, Snow. My guest has been Corey Peterson-Smith, who is uh, the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he researches U.S. empire, borders, and migration. He's written for such outlets as The Nation and Yes Magazine. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Are You With Sonali.